The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Are you all ready for the big season finale episode? That's what this is, isn't it? Uh, well, we're going to be off for two weeks. I don't know how much of a hiatus two <laughs> weeks is. I know. It's uh, it's kind of like the old days of television when they used to do 39 episodes of like the Honeymooners in a year. Now they do, what, 13? Maybe that's what we should do for season four. We should do eight episodes and then go on break for like four months. That's what the British do. I mean, if you watch Top Gear, for example, they do six or seven shows, or they did, and <laughs> then they would uh, disappear for, for months on end. We would watch you know, weird reruns for, for months and months and months, and then they would come back with another six or seven new shows, and then the whole thing would repeat. So it's like they have season 21, but you haven't been on 21 years. No, I know. We do a couple of seasons within a year, but they're only six or seven shows. Yeah, and we'll get ourselves a quarter billion dollar budget from Amazon.com to do this show. Oh, <laughs> I know. Hey, did you read the story about Amazon in the New York Times on Sunday? I haven't, but I hear that uh, working for that joint is no picnic. Wow, it was it was a brutal takedown. If you on the front page, there was one story or one comment from a guy who said that pretty much everybody he's ever seen working there. He's seen crying at their desk. It's almost as bad as the world's worst intern program here at Geeks and Beats. If we're lucky, the gray old lady will leave us alone. <laughs> yeah, I know. They better not investigate us. Everybody that's working for us is working for us because they want to, because they think they can get something out of us. How wrong are they? Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Don't like scary movies? What if the theme was in a major key? We'll transpose some of the best in Fright Films. The Apple Watch for your dog. We'll introduce you to a Kickstarter campaign called Buddy, which does more tricks than the Apple Watch itself. And no song in the summer for 2015? There were four rules before a track can have it uh, made in the shade. Plus, the winner of our limited edition G&B smartphone charger and China bands 120 pop songs, including one called Fart. Lovely, lovely, lovely. What a way to end the season. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Famous horror movie themes in a major key. about music theory. Actually, you don't even have to know anything about music theory. You'll know that um, minor chords, minor keys sound sad, at least in our culture. Minor keys equal sad. And a lot of famous horror films have themes that are written in minor keys because, I mean, you're dealing with, you know, death and blood and dismemberment and you know, whatever else. So you wouldn't necessarily want a happy little tune to go along with your movie. But what somebody has done, and I love when people do this, they've taken these horror themes, uh, The Exorcist, Nightmare on Elm Street, and a couple of others, Halloween, and they've transposed the score, the theme, from a minor key into a major one. 
and the results are quite funny. As the AVClub.com points out, Nigel Tufnell famously said D minor is the saddest of all keys. It is true. Uh, that's one of the things, one of the many things I learned from Spinal Tap. It's pretty. Yeah, I like it. Just been fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. So it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between those. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> so my favorite one out of all of this has to be the X-Files one, which comes across as just so happy and chipper. <laughs> I know. It, it's not quite the same, is it? And what else is not quite the same is uh, tubular bells when uh, you listen to it in a more upbeat tone. Which is the theme from The Exorcist. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, tubular Bells was a two-parts multi-track symphony by Mike Oldfield released in, on the Virgin label in 1973. And the uh, that's the same year The Exorcist came out. And um, Tubular Bells Part 1, if you... Um, Oh, I didn't know there was a two-part, but I see here there's like three or four. Well, yeah, there is sort of. Uh, side one is part one, side two is part two. And the Exorcist theme is the first bit of side one. According to this, and I'm reading out of the internet, so it must be true, um, David Bedford for the orchestral Tubular Bells version had three sequels in the 90s, tub Tubular Bells 2 in 92, Tubular Bells 3 in 98, uh, which I think he missed it by waiting until 98 instead of 93 for three, and the Millennium Bell in 1999. What a lot of people don't realize is that Tubular Bells was a huge, huge hit for Virgin Records, which at the time was a brand new record label. Richard Branson was the owner at the time. And that success really put Virgin Records on the map and on the road to founding an airline. 1972, Virgin Records opened its doors with Roy Orbison, Devo, and Genesis. Can you imagine showing up for that board meeting? <laughs> Richard Branson started selling records, um, not his own records, but he had sort of like a mail order thing out of his, his college dorm. Oh, really? And uh, he was selling other people's records. And then he decided, no, I'm going to create my own record label, which which he did. And then the big hit was uh, Tubular Bells. And eventually he did things like uh, sign the Sex Pistols. And then uh, in the 90s, he sold the entire thing for almost a billion dollars. And he used that money as seed money to launch Virgin Airlines. It was sold to EMI, wasn't it? Yes, it was, as a matter of fact. Oh, I got a point. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Meantime, at geeksandbeats.com, our uh, resident uh, writer extraordinaire, Amber Healy, has uh, found that new research shows that listening to music before during and after surgery reduces the stress and the need for pills, or at least as many pills. Isn't this a story that kind of 
comes around every 18 months or so? Well, this one was based upon uh, the medical journal The Lancet, which on the 15th of August uh, published a journal that indicated that some people recover from surgery faster if they listen to their favorite tunes uh, before they go under the knife, as well as during, which is odd to me. I suppose when you get put under, you're still uh, awake to a degree, I guess, as well as uh, afterwards. Quote, music is non-invasive, safe, and inexpensive, an intervention that can be delivered easily and successfully, according to the abstract. Interesting. I haven't had surgery in a very long time. It's been about, uh, oh God, a dozen years. <laughs> There's a joke in there somewhere. Somewhere there is. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm sure that there will be something somewhere along the line that requires removal or repair. So I'm going to keep this in mind and make sure I have um, instructions to, to stick the... Uh, the iPhone in my ears. You can give me some insight into this because on that particular topic, I found and I had been warned when I hit 30 and I said, yeah, I just turned 30. People are like, oh, you know, your body's going to start changing. What they didn't tell me is that when you hit 40, that's when the Sony warranty expires and everything starts to fall apart. This is true. You'll find aches and pains and things not working as well as they once did. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, there are so many different avenues to go down on that particular We discussion. don't need to. We'll just say that as after a certain period of time, the body begins to wear out and there are certain things that aren't as... Functional? As they used to be. As efficient? Yes. Pre-recorded music played through headphones in the background of the operating room is viewed as a non-invasive, safe, and inexpensive intervention method compared to pharmaceuticals, according to The Lancet. And while the practice is not yet widespread, most likely because we're not really convinced that this is really working, but the research found that when patients were allowed to choose the music themselves, there was a slight increase but non-significant reduction in pain compared to when patients had no choice. Now, there was a story sometime in the last two weeks that talked about music in the operating room. But this music was for the benefit of the surgeons and the surgical team. Well, this is what we're learning now that Wifey and I have discovered the now 13-year-old, the now 16-year-old TV show Scrubs, that the physicians generally like to, to rock out or perhaps play classical music. My point is, with this last study, is that music can be a distraction to the surgeons and the surgical team. This study filmed some 2,000 operations, and they noticed that a uh, and they noticed that a request had to be repeated up to five times before it was actually done in the field in in, in the surgical field in the, in, in the operating field. So they're thinking, well, maybe music being played in the operating room isn't such a good idea because your surgeon isn't paying attention, or the nurses or, or backup staff isn't paying attention. So while it may be good for you, the patient, it may not be so good for the, uh, the guy actually helming the operation. Now, that being said, I do, I, I, I'm remembering now that when I do go to the dentist, and I am the biggest suck in the world when it comes to the dentist, especially when I have to have a filling. I am, I'm terrible, especially my lower jaw, you know, they have to give me gas just to put the needle in. That's how much of a suck I am. And I always have music on on my phone while just to drown out the sound of the drill. If I have to turn the music off to park my car, I don't think I want the surgeon with Janis Joplin playing in the background. Uh, yes, that's true.
Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. Okay, so we had been chastised on Twitter for our repeated reporting of Apple Watch-related paraphernalia. Um, and we are at risk of losing all of our listeners by reporting on the Apple Watch for your dog. Okay, you're going to have to take me through this because I think this is dumb. I love my <laughs> dogs, but they're not getting an Apple Watch. Oh, you're going to love this. Absolutely. It's created by a company called Squeaker, which uh, I guess this is the next generation of what they had previously come out with, which was called the Pooch Light, which was an LED dog collar. Yeah, that makes sense. I've seen those where you put the put them on your dog, especially if you're walking at night. It's, it's a good thing to have. Squeaker, though, takes that to a whole new level. It's got a three-axis accelerometer in it, so it keeps track of the physical activity of your dog. And it's got all sorts of other sensors built into it, much like an Apple Watch, such that it keeps track of the body temperature of the pooch. And here's where it gets interesting. When the caller sees that doggy's getting a little overheated, you can have it programmed to automatically turn up the air conditioning on your Nest thermostat. Now, here's why I kind of like that. My little bull terrier, Squirt, loves to play fetch and it's been very hot around the house lately and we can throw the ball again and again and again and again she gets rather obsessive about the whole thing and she will run and fetch until she passes out and you have to be very careful with dogs in the summertime because they can't overheat they don't sweat so the only thing that they can do is pant and maybe something like this might be a good idea because we're always worried about our little our little girl because uh, she has a heart murmur, as many bull terriers do, and we don't want her to get too overheated lest uh, her heart blow up. In addition to being concerned about that, you can keep track of the dog because the caller has a GPS tracking device built into it and the accessory app that comes with it. You can geofence it such that if the dog runs beyond the border you establish, you get a smartphone notification, and then you can start tracking the dog to get the pooch back. See, that's not a bad idea either. All my dogs have been chipped, but that doesn't really help until the dog is recovered. That's right. And if the dog's been hit by a car, that doesn't help you. No. You want to get the dog before something happens. So this is a Kickstarter campaign. Okay, how, how much is it? They have 494 backers with 15 days to go as of this conversation. They have a goal of 385000 and they've met only 123000 of that $385,000 goal. Okay, and it says here it'll come in small, medium, and large. We'll sell for 180 U.S. Right, so they've, they've got, if you are willing to, to drop the $199, um, which is their super rare early bird, um, they uh, get it. The buddy is what they're calling it. The buddy is the, the name of the, the I'm just going to call it a bracelet. <laughs> the buddy is the name. The buddy of the, is the name of the caller, um, and it comes with the GPS, the dis, the OLED display, and that was the other thing that I forgot to mention is that it's got programmable colored lights, and you can 
control the pattern of the lights. Looks like your dog is going to a rave. Right. So in the middle of the night, if you're taking the pooch out at night, you can keep on top of where the, where the dog is. I take back everything that I said at the beginning. I want one of these things. Uh, and here, here's, a, here's a feature for you, because you're concerned about the health of your dog, is it has a food scanner. So while it's keeping track of the health statistics of your dog, when you pick up the canned dog food, you scan the barcode on the back, it tells you what the food is, and it tells you whether or not this is an appropriate food for your dog based upon its lifestyle. 14-day battery life, it's got a Wi-Fi charging dock. Three-axis accelerometer, an yeah. OLED display. <laughs> yeah. This thing's more advanced than my Apple Watch. I know. Uh, GPS tracking, Bluetooth connectivity. Yeah. And on the OLED display, what it's displaying for you is the calorie count of how many calories your dog has burned. Okay. I Calendar alerts. What? what? Okay. You, time to take the dog out for a walk. Social alerts. <laughs> when your dog is on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a dog Twitter account somewhere. All right, let me think about this. Well, you don't think too long because they've got less than two weeks to go and they're only halfway to their goal. Well, this is uh, 385000 Australian dollars. Here in my car, I have The Apple car, meantime, almost ready for testing. Yeah, um, here's the story is that not only do they have the heads-up display that they're apparently working on, but they're investigating, um, I guess it's an old army base or old some sort of military installation in the San Francisco area that they may want to take over to turn into a skunk works for their autonomous vehicle. Oh, you're talking about the Gomentum station, which is actually patrolled by the U.S. military, which makes it a great base for testing out cars because they built basically a miniature city. Right. And it's it's completely isolated from the rest of San Francisco. I mean, if it's a military operation, there's no way in or out without having to go through a, a whack of checkpoints. It's a perfect high security place. Uh, like it's it's, a, it's an Area 51 right there in, in, in in the Bay Area. Mercedes-Benz and Honda already use it. It's got something like 20 miles of paved highways and city streets. And because it's designed explicitly for this purpose, it's got cattle grids, railway crossings, tunnels, all the kind of stuff you would need to test an autonomous vehicle. 2,100 acre former naval base. High security testing ground for autonomous vehicles. According to Cultimac.com, though, an announcement on Apple's autonomous vehicle isn't expected until 2020 at the earliest. Yeah, uh, and I'm still not convinced. I mean, Apple is is always experimenting with new products, and 99% of them never go anywhere. So this just could be some kind of, ah, let's see what we can do. Another hobby you know, that's even less important to the overall health of the company than Apple TV. So... Um, I don't know. And I still don't like the idea of autonomous vehicles. I understand that there's some people who think that this is the wave of the future, but I like to drive. I don't want a machine to drive for me. Give me a good heads-up display. That's cool, but don't give me a car that drives me instead of me driving it. I know. We've discussed this. The Guardian is the source for the Cult of Mac article, and they have documents that they say they've obtained under a Public Records Act request. And within it, uh, they have a document 
document found written by an engineer at Apple named Frank Fearon, and he wrote, quote, we would like to get an understanding of timing and availability for the space and how we would need to coordinate around other parties who would be using uh, the Gomentum station. Uh, this all came out back in May, apparently, at least the, the internal emails and, and all of that kind of stuff. Tim Cook apparently signed off on the project last year, and hundreds of engineers have been working on it in Sunnyvale. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We finally have a winner of our Power Stick, don't we? We do. The Geeks and Beats Limited Edition Power Stick 3. And the only way you could win this limited edition is if you were a member of the world's worst intern program. That's what we uh, do here at the Geeks and Beats podcast. You pay us at least $1 an episode to work on the show. You don't actually have to lift a finger. You contribute nothing to the actual production of the show, just like a real Hollywood intern. And we get your money in exchange, which makes it the world's worst intern program. And so the winner of the GMP Limited Edition Power Stick 3 is... Benjamin Gresick. Congratulations, Ben. So uh, we should point out what a Power Stick 3 is. Oh, that's right. It is a charger, courtesy of the fine folks at Power Stick, uh, that uh, is 2,300 milliamps, which will charge your smartphone from 0% to 100% at least once if you have a flip phone one billion times. Mm, like my dad has, the one that he clips to his belt. <laughs> Next to his onion? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My father-in-law got himself a new car with the Bluetooth built into the dashboard, by the way, and he had to upgrade his flip phone because the Bluetooth chip in it was older than the car itself <laughs> and ended up getting himself a, a Samsung Android-based smartphone despite having an Apple iPad at home. I, I, I was mortified that he did so. Well, he... Uh, but, you know, he, he didn't even get a data plan for it. Well, then what's the point? Well, talk to the old man oh, about that. Okay. We also have three co-producers on this week's big show. Three? Yes, we want to say uh, congratulations and thank you, Jimmy Wright, for being our Big Shot co-producer this week. Courtesy of a friend of yours who listens to the big show, uh, he wanted to return the favor. Uh, so for his birthday, he made a $100 pledge, which made him basically the executive producer of this show. He gets a swag pack which is some fabulous Geeks and Beats gear, and we will ship that off to him because this is basically his birthday. About 10 years ago, his wife Leslie had a birthday party for him, and friends and coworkers got together. And over the past decade, it's evolved from that to overnight camping trips because they don't want the cops called on them. Mm, makes sense. Go out in the bush someplace. Right. So thank you and happy birthday to you. Thank you for being uh, the Big Shot uh, executive producer of this week's show. Rachel and Reese Alderati, congratulations and thank you for being uh, contributors to the big show. As co-producers, we want to thank you. Dad, uh, put your name in there because apparently I did not mispronounce his last name. Very good. Well, that's what happens when you're a professional broadcaster. You learn to hit these names cold. <laughs> Can I tell you a story about that? Hit me up. Um, my, my wife was working with somebody at um, a radio station in Niagara Falls. And <laughs> this woman was reading the sports. And she ran, the car, she ran into Joaquin Anduhar's name. And she hit it cold. So it came out as Wahi Huhar. <laughs> 
Not a baseball fan, this woman. Did I ever tell you my um, total botching of a sports name? Uh, I'm not surprised that you, yes. the world's greatest sports fan, yes. botched a name. Um, this actually ties back into WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, no. Okay. Yes. I, I had a Les Nesman moment. Now, you remember the episode in which Les Nesman is reporting on, I believe it's the tennis star, Chichi Rodriguez? G- golf. Golf. Thank you. <laughs> it's golf. <laughs> Turning to sports. <laughs> This week's Gulf Coast Golf Classic was Chai Chai Rodriguez. <laughs> Chai Chai finished with a nine under par score. Chi Chi Rodriguez. Hopefully, Mr. Rodriguez will play up to par next competition. My first on air job as a, a news guy at uh, the mighty CFOS in Owen Sound, I, uh, I had Chichi Rodriguez as one of the stories in my newscast. Now, you know, as, as somebody who, who can read on the radio, that it doesn't take up 100% of your brain power. You're not daydreaming. It's, it's your mind is going in two tracks. Think of it as a two-track recorder. One is what's coming out of your mouth, and the other is what's happening in your brain. Right. And they can be running simultaneously and be two different things. It's hard to explain unless you do it. So when the Chichi Rodriguez story came across the newswire, I thought to myself as a huge fan of WKRP, I have to include this in my sports cast. How could I not? So I did. Okay. And when you're reading the news, I read the first news story, and in the back of my head, the Chichi Rodriguez segment on WKRP was going through my head, where he pronounces it... Chai Chai Rodriguez. Right. So I turn the page, and I read the next story. And as I'm reading the next story, the WKRP segment goes through my head again. Chai Chai Rodriguez. I flip to the next story. Now, I've got five or six items in my newscast, and every time I turn a page, it runs through my head one more time. When we come back, sports, and we hit the commercial break, and of course, I'm joking about how I've got this coming up in in my, my sports report. We come out of the commercial break, I read the first story, I read the second story, and I turn the page to the uh, Chichi Rodriguez story. Now, it's gone through my head seven or eight times by this point, to the point where I can't remember if it's Chi-Chi or Chai-Chai. <laughs> so, what percentage possibility do I have of getting it right? 50%. No. This is me we're talking about. Okay, so it's like 80% of getting it wrong now. I hit the first Chi, and I can't remember if it's Chi-Chi or Chai-Chai, and I say Chai-Chi. <laughs> I had a 0% chance of getting it right. Oh, God. And the, and the yeah. DJ on the other side of the glass just looks up from his morning newspaper, shakes his head, and goes back to reading the funnies. <laughs> yeah. If you're a broadcaster, you've had many of those moments. It just comes with the territory. <laughs> Geeks and Beats updates uh, from our uh, website. Uh, Janet Joplin's final concert, 45 years later. You'll have to explain this to me because I've missed it. Window, just looking out at the rain. Yes, Amber Healy was reporting this week that uh, we celebrated, or some did, the 45th anniversary of Janis Joplin's final concert at, of all places, Harvard University. Oh, I didn't know that. I was never a Janet Joplin fan, but continue. 
Well, neither was I, which is why I thought we needed to put this on the on the big show, because I needed your help on that. But clearly, I'm not going to get any of it from you. There's a couple of things I know about Janet, uh, Janis Joplin. Okay. Wait a second. Oh. It's, it's, you've got Janet Joplin written here. No, Janice. Janice. Okay. Did on I the lineup, Janet? it says Janet Joplin. I'm thinking, <laughs> is that her sister? No, 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 no. Her middle name is Chi-Chi. Oh, okay, good. Um, well, she once signed a record deal with, um, I can't remember who it would be, uh, but she offered to consummate the record deal by having sex with the executive in, in charge. Like, like flat out, this wasn't like implied? This was... No, this, this is the 60s. This is what she did. And then when she died, it was discovered in her will that uh, she had left behind $2,500 for all her friends to have a gigantic blowout. Which in 1970, I can imagine, would have been a big deal. It would have been a huge deal. I mean, $2,500 would have gone a long way. And nobody was was doing something like that. I mean, today we have all the celebrations of life and all that sort of stuff. In fact, in, in our will, we have a provision made for people to have a, a party. But I think in 1970, that was still pretty radical stuff. You've got a party built into your will? Yes. Yes, we do. Wouldn't this just be called a wake? We're going to prop you and uh, wifey up in the corner there? No, we have uh, set aside a certain amount of funds, and I can't remember what it is. It might be about $2,500, for people to go out and uh, have a, a drink and a, and a meal on us uh, as a way of um, sending us off. Well, all right then. Uh, me, I, I don't think anybody would show up. Well, Amber writes that most girls go through some stage in their life when Janice is their heroine, and she says she was no different. Um, of course, Joplin died years before Healy herself was born, uh, but she said once she hit the last year or so of college, she was the strong voice in the messy uncertainty that was life after everything that had been clearly mapped out. If she could leave home and stop giving a damn about what people thought of her in her wild ways, maybe I'd be okay too. There were very few at the time female rock stars and Janis Joplin was one of the first um, where she was she she wrote a lot of her own stuff she hired and fired her band she was the person out front it was her name on all the records and um, you know she came out of Texas with this big screaming bluesy voice and she was not you know the typical and this is going to sound disparaging, but I don't mean it to, the typical lady or girl singer of the era. She was something completely different, which is why we're still talking about her today. Right. She was no Nancy Sinatra. No, she was no Nancy Sinatra. She was no Diana Ross. She was even, you know, no Aretha Franklin. She was something much more raw and rugged. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. report this week that there is no Song of Summer for 2015. There has always been, at least in the memories of a lot of people, a song that personifies a particular summer. Like you can go back to any year between 1952 and now and pick out a song that will forever be associated with whatever you were doing that particular summer. 
And in the past, we've had blurred lines. There was Call Me Maybe. There was Iggy Azalea with Fancy. There was Gotcha with somebody I used to know. These are just some of the more recent ones. But this year, there has been nothing that anyone can call a true anthem for those months between May and September. You say there are four criteria that must be met for a song to qualify as a song of summer. Right. Now, to qualify, and these are my criteria... First of all, the song has to be ubiquitous to the point of being annoying. Okay. No matter where you turn, you hear the song throughout those May, June, July, August. One just jumped right into my head, but keep going. It has to be known by millions of people, even the most casual music fans. And it has to be known to the point where almost everybody can sing at least a couple of the lyrics Maybe from the chorus. All right. I, this, this song in my head is still qualifying. Keep going. Okay. It has to be the cause of headache-inducing earworms. Oh, yes. Which is a function of A and B. Mm. And D, this is the very nebulous part. It has to somehow encapsulate the feeling and zeitgeist of this particular northern hemisphere summer. So you say you have one in your head. What would it be? Taylor Swift's style. You got that jeans. No, no. This song, I can't, I, I can't, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. I can't go into a men's room without listening to Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, well, Taylor, Taylor Swift would be a candidate for a song of the summer artist, but uh, all of her big, you know, shake it off. It peaked too soon. Bad blood. But, you know, the video turned off a lot of people. Style. Don't think it came along at the right time. It's a matter of, of timing, too. For example, The Weeknd has a really big song right now called Can't Feel My Face. I can't feel my face when I'm She'll be the death of me, at least we'll both be numb. And she'll always get the best of me, the worst is yet to come. It's only peaking now in August, which is too late to qualify it for a song of the summer. So it's got to be what, May, you said? Well, it has to be released usually sometime in either late March or sometime through April so it can build. So by the time we get to the American... Memorial Day weekend, it is on its way up the charts. And then once June hits, it's peaking. It's it's at the top of the charts and it stays there for weeks on end. And then finally, as the summer begins to wane, so does the popularity of the song. By the time we get to Labor Day, we've moved on. But that song has made its impact. It has become the song of the summer. Nothing qualifies this year. Nothing at all. I wonder if this is related then Fewer millennials are going to dance clubs these days. Well, this is a really interesting story that came out of the UK. Apparently, half, half of all UK dance clubs have closed in, in the last 10 years. And a lot of this has to do with just the nature of music these days. People um, are finding other things to do rather than to go out and dance to a DJ. So they're not going to necessarily the clubs, but they may be going to the big dance events, which may be in a field, which may be in a warehouse, which may be in a stadium or, you know, some EDM festival, something like that. But um, for the longest time, the UK and some other territories were overserved 
but the number of dance clubs. They just had too many of them. And there was a period of attrition where the music went in a completely different direction or the scene went in a completely different direction. And a lot of these British nightclubs have closed down. It's happened around here in Toronto, too, because we used to have the entertainment district where there was club after club after club. But they're slowly being pushed out. Because the city has decided that the entertainment district shouldn't be about entertainment anymore. It should be about condos. Uh, so they're closing down. Just let that go by. Is there like a, a bark limit before they give up? Uh, yeah, there is. There they go. So, um... So there, there's the situation. Is it's it's just a a change, uh, especially in the UK, uh, where it's become too expensive to go out, and you can have as much fun at home with a bottle of cheap wine and an iPhone than you can by going to a club and paying you know twenty five quid to get in. Well, there's an interesting theory as to why the kids today aren't going to the clubs like they used to, and one of them is. Losing your smartphone. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, millennials find themselves in a really awkward position in the first place. First of all, this is the generation that came out of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, loaded up with student debt, having a hell of a time trying to find a job. Find a job, get themselves a place to live, and the next thing you know, they lose their smartphone at the club and it's going to cost them 600 additional dollars to replace it. You lose one or two smartphones. You're going to think twice about finding yourself in a scenario where you could very well lose it in a drunken moment. This is true. Uh, I know. I bet you on Saturday and Sunday mornings, cab companies are inundated with phone calls from people who have thought that they left their smartphones behind in the, in the cab. And I bet you they have hundreds of them. I once lost a, a cell phone in a cab, and my problem is is that because of what I do for a living, I have my cell phone on me, but I can't have it ring, so it's always on vibrate. I left it in the backseat of a cab on vibrate. I called, figuring, well, chances are it's not even going to hear it if it's in the footwell of, of the backseat of the cab. It went ring, 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 click to voicemail. I'm like, wait a minute. It doesn't go to voicemail until six rings. The bastard took it. Turned it off, kept it free phone for him. Yep. Well, did you lock it? You obviously didn't have it locked. No, I had it locked. You can power a phone off without this. And this is the, and this was you know before the the, the smartphone era. But uh, today, even now, while you can track a stolen iPhone or even an Android device, so long as the thief has the ability to power off the phone, you're out of luck. And this is one of the big security issues with the Apple smartphone these days is the recommendation is, is that you cannot be permitted to power off the phone without your fingerprint. That's interesting. It's not built in yet, but this is what they want to do. This is what the this cyber security industry is saying. There's no point in having all of this security built into your phone if the guy can just power it off. So, wait a second. He can power it off, but when you turn it back on, you have to put in your code. Right, unless you've got a, a, a hacking system where you can plug into the lightning connector and route around that. And that's possible, is it? It is. On the topic of uh, songs of summer or the lack thereof, China is banning 120 songs, including this hit, Fart. Yeah, China has 
bigger problems than <laughs> this these days. Every once in a while, the Chinese government comes up with a list of songs that they uh, don't particularly like, that they're not particularly fond of. And this list comes from the Ministry of Culture, like all the other ones. And they have condemned these tracks as trumpeting obscenity, violence, crime, or harming social morality. Talking about a fart song that trumpets? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> the songs are mostly online, and uh, they've been told to take them down. If they don't, the individuals responsible will face severe punishment, whatever that means, for violating online cultural management regulations. Pretty much all the songs that we're talking about here are in Chinese, so we would have never heard any of them unless we speak Mandarin or Cantonese. But anyway, I have a list of some of the songs here. I'll give you some titles. Uh, a Good Teacher. Uh, big deal. Uh, I Do Not Care. Uh, the Clause of Rebirth. This is all Google Translate. Um, we Do Not Sleep. Did Not Want to Go to School. Ooh, that's a problem. Uh, One Night Stand. I Would Baird Big Honey. Uh, don't know what that means. Uh, suicide Diary, Darkness Kissed Your Mouth. You Are Invited Reinforcement Monkey Do. The District Where the Advanced Sports Car, by a Not Band. Uh, one of the most notable bands is a track called Fart, like you said. It's by a Taiwanese pop singer called Chang Sung Yak and Stanley Huang, who's a Taiwanese actor. And um, here's a line from the song. Uh, there are some people in the world who like farting while doing nothing. Now, you would think that this has to do with vulgar flatulence, but no, it has nothing to do with, with that. According to the translation of the song's meaning, it is being banned because, uh, and this is from Breitbart, it is a rebuke of syncophantic workers at the office who are too reverent to authority. In other words, brown nosers and suck-ups. The title of the song, Fart, literally means farting in Chinese, but in the Chinese language, this term is also commonly used to describe people who, uh, well, BS a lot. So basically, it's a BS artist who talks big, uh, who is seen as farting, and that's the context. So this user, uh, well, he's, he's basically, they're, they're, it's about lamenting workers who suck up to the boss, which of course... In a uh, socialist paradise such as China, this is something that you certainly want to do. And then again 20 minutes later. Oh, really? We're going to go there? Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.